Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 20, Imperator Caesar, Dibifilius Augustus. Last week, with the deaths of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, the last civil war of the Roman Republic was over. Octavian had no more rivals as no one could challenge his Octoritas or army. Now in his mid-thirties, he had been consecutively re-elected consul to set about restoring the Republic. Under Octavian's steady leadership, after so many civil wars, he would bring the Republic back to prosperity. Of course, we would not call him the first Roman emperor if this was the case. After publicly saying he wished to retire as a politician, both the Senate and the people of the Republic voted to give Octavian great powers. It was the popularis vision of the Republic ruled by the popular will, united with the ultimate vision of the Republic ruled by the Senate. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. Ironically, this made the popular will and Senate impotent, transferring all their power to Octavian. Congratulations, you played yourself. Octavian was given the power to manage several of the most problematic provinces at once. With great reluctance, Octavian accepted. On January 16, 27 BCE, the Senate also decided to honor him with the name of Augustus, thus making the boy born Gaius Octavius into Imperator Caesar Dibifilius Augustus. Augustus's name is a story in and of itself. Imperator Caesar meant he was the victorious general of Caesar's family. Dibifilius meant he was the son of God, in this case, the deified Julius Caesar. It's next to godliness. Isn't that what they say? Augustus was a new name entirely, with religious connotations, and carried a lot of majesty. This is the moment most historians mark as the death of the Roman Republic. Hey, that's the name of the show. And the beginning of the Roman Empire. Augustus's official title was not emperor, but princeps, the first citizen of the Republic. With all these formal, legal powers given to him, Augustus was effectively one man leading the state. He was 36 years old at the time, and would rule the Roman Empire for nearly 40 years. Augustus's rule has been described as a veiled monarchy. He was the emperor with unlimited power, but he was very modest and subtle about it, and his power was legally gained. In hindsight, it is easy and accurate to call him a military dictator who achieved and maintained his rule through his loyal army. Romans at the time realized they were being dominated by Augustus, as to not turn the Senate and people against him, as the Senate did turn on Julius Caesar, Augustus carefully and subtly cultivated his public image as a servant of the Republic who brought peace and stability. Augustus made very clear he was following laws to the letter, as opposed to Julius Caesar, whose unlimited dictatorship had no clear purpose. Our essential question this episode is, why was Augustus never assassinated, and why did no Romans seriously challenge his rule or ever try to restore the Republic? Quick note, this whole series, there was no swear words, but this episode, there are two, GD and HE double hockey sticks. Both are said in clips between minutes 44 and 45, so if you feel like you need to skip that, you can go ahead and do so between that time frame. As a longer note, rather than chronologically look at the rest of Augustus's life, his life will be segmented into different sections this chapter. We'll look first at his rule in the provinces, then the wars he waged, his rule in Italy and Rome, his failures, his death, and finally reflect on Augustus's life and legacy. In a few months from now, I'm going to remaster this episode so we look at Augustus's life in chronological order. 
you might check right now if there's an episode out called Chapter 20 Remastered if you would prefer to hear about Augustus's life chronologically rather than thematically. That said, I'm perfectly happy with this episode. I wouldn't put it out otherwise, but I wanted to make clear a remaster will be out in the future and may be available to you now. As a content warning this episode, there is mention of suicide and sexual assault. Speaking first of his rule abroad, Augustus was given direct control over the most problematic provinces in the Roman world that would likely need military action, like the rebellious Spain. Augustus was given command of these provinces for five or ten years at a time, and this would always be renewed by the Senate before this limit ran out. As Augustus could not be everywhere at once, he delegated the task of overseeing the provinces to legates, as Pompey did when he stayed in Italy and had three legates to oversee his governorship in Spain. These legates effectively acted as governors, and to serve as one of Augustus's legates was as prestigious as serving as the governor after a consulship or praetorship. Augustus also increased the rate legates and governors were rotated out of provinces, giving more senators the prestige and auctoritas and getting to call themselves a governor. Additionally, it made it harder for a single man to entrench himself in a province and gain influence that could threaten Augustus. If governors rotated out faster, it was also harder for a single man to inflict a ton of damage with corruption. Roman governors in the Republic would commonly start wars or squeeze their provinces to earn glory and make themselves rich. Money, please! Oh, no, no, there's no money. Oh, my bad. No problem. <laughs> oh, okay. That's fine. Um, I'll just destroy this thing. Oh, hey! <clears throat> Money, please! Money, please. Give her some money. It's easier. After four years of getting a few provinces to directly control, Augustus gained legal authority over all of them. The Senate empowered him with Imperium Maius, the same power once given to Pompey Magnus to fight the pirates of the Mediterranean. And that's a callback. While there were still some provinces that senators would govern after they served as consul or praetor, while they normally held the highest authority, if Augustus came to their province, his will legally dominated theirs. I'm in charge. Do you feel in charge? With Imperium Maius, Augustus was the highest authority in every province. For the rest of Augustus's life, he would spend a few years in Rome at a time, and then a few years abroad, touring the provinces. When totaling the movements of his life, he actually spent a bit more time touring his provinces. While he was in the provinces, he visited the major settlements and gave communities the chance to bring their problems directly to Augustus. If they were suffering from high taxes, who better to talk to than the emperor, I mean the princeps? The communities in the provinces honored him, naming new settlements some variation of Caesar and or Augustus for him, and putting up buildings and monuments in his honor. His image was very prominent in the Roman world, and even as Augustus became an old man, the coins and statues of his likeness were eternally youthful. Augustus was fairly popular in the provinces whose long rule was generally keeping the peace as promised. The eastern provinces in particular have been ravaged for resources. Poppy Magnus had squeezed I want you to squeeze the east and his civil war with Caesar. Brutus and Cassius squeezed and squeezed the East for their civil war with the Triumvirate. Mark Antony squeezed and squeezed the East for his invasion of Parthia, and Antony and Cleopatra squeezed 
You must be Antony's squeeze. It for their civil war against Octavian. But finally, with peace, the East had many years of recovery under the rule of Augustus. When parts of Augustus's house burnt down in a fire in Rome, communities from across the empire donated to their princeps to help him restore his house. Augustus only took a small amount from each community and sent the rest back, so all could have the honor of helping the princeps rebuild his home. Augustus also reformed Rome's military, which mostly now resided in the provinces. He greatly reduced its size and spread it out considerably. There would be a total of 28 legions for the empire, along with as many auxiliary units. These 28 legions would be in the provinces and spaced out. Out in the provinces, where Augustus was given command by the senate, or had Imperium Maius over the governors, the legions were still ultimately loyal to him. As there were less legions, there were less soldiers that Augustus had to keep on the payroll. Spaced out, if an individual governor was stupid enough to rebel against Augustus, he would assumingly have a few legions loyal to him in his province, but he was vastly outmatched by every other legion Augustus had at his disposal. Within Italy itself, there was the Praetorian Guard, also explicitly loyal to Augustus, who were just under the size of a legion. Out in the provinces, 28 legions were considered enough to defend the empire's borders and expand them. Soldiers would serve for 20 years instead of 16 and had their salaries paid by Augustus himself, ensuring their loyalty to him over anyone else. Instead of promises of land, soldiers were promised an additional bonus upon retiring. Augustus's full name was Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus. He had been perceived as winning so much in his life that Imperator was turned into his permanent name. Of course, as we've heard over the course of the series, Augustus wasn't a particularly gifted general. Mark Antony won the civil war against Brutus and Cassius for him, and his loyal friend Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa Guy love, that's all it is. Guy love, he's mine, I'm his. defeated Sextus Pompey and Mark Antony for him. But Agrippa never aspired to overthrow or outshine his friend Augustus. It's guy love between two guys. And propaganda played up Augustus's lesser military accomplishments. Romans always had a penchant for war, and a stable, prosperous Rome was a victorious Rome. Common Roman citizens were very pleased when Augustus led them to wars of aggressive expansion and conquest. Immediately after he was named Augustus, he and Agrippa took off for Spain to conquer the whole of the Iberian Peninsula. We made it! They were victorious, although Agrippa had to finish the job in a final major Spanish rebellion a few years later. How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? Under his reign, Augustus would also conquer the Alps in between Italy and Gaul. While the previously unconquered tribal peoples there was not much of a security concern, conquering them made it easier for the Romans to move between Gaul and Italy. Looking east, the Rhine River separated the boundary between Gaul and German tribes. Julius Caesar had made some forays there, but didn't settle any land. Under Augustus's reign, Roman armies made small expansions there, but there were no great conquests of the German tribes, like that of the Gauls by Julius Caesar. However, Augustus's greatest victory for the Romans was one in which he didn't conquer any territory, but avenged the fallen. 
In 20 BCE, when Augustus was 43 years old, he negotiated with King Phraates IV of Parthia, the man who defeated Antony. The two rulers had a diplomatic exchange. King Phraates' rival had kidnapped his son and fled into Roman territory where they were kept safe. Phraates demanded his son back and his rival back. Through negotiations, Augustus handed back Phraates' son, but allowed the rival to stay in Rome. In return for his son, Phraates gave the Romans back their captured eagles from Crassus' ill-fated invasion over three decades ago, from Antony's ill-fated invasion 16 years ago, as well as any of the living Roman prisoners. This was one of Augustus's most celebrated and publicized victories, and the propaganda stated that Parthia submitted to the will of Rome and returned its long-lost eagles. The loss of them was a black mark on Rome's honor for decades, and Augustus restored that honor. While it was good that Augustus provided for the provincials and kept them happy, perhaps the people he had to please the most were the Italians and the people in the city of Rome itself. Fortunately for him, for the most part, he did. Augustus came to supreme power over Rome exhausted by generations of civil wars. His rule was the promise of peace and stability, and he generally delivered on that. Senators knew they could advance their careers with Augustus's favor, so there were always many sycophants who very loudly celebrated whatever he accomplished. I clapped, I clapped when I saw it. Throughout his life, the Senate showered Augustus with many additional honors. However, Augustus only accepted a few of these as he tried to not flaunt his supreme power. I too am extraordinarily humble. When ruling the empire, I, I mean republic, if there was ever an important issue, Augustus often took it to the Senate to discuss, even if he would always get his way. While no Roman could hope to match all the auctoritas of Augustus, he was not blatant in his rule, and after his 11th consulship, Come on, what? How? Come on! He stepped away from the consulship for quite a while and was content to rule as princeps, allowing other senators to run for the prestigious position. Just as Augustus was given the legal powers to rule supreme in the provinces, the Senate gave him the power to single-handedly rule Italy and Rome. The Senate bestowed upon him the powers of the tribune without making him a tribune. Most important was the power of the Tribunicia Potestas. The office of tribune was first designed when Rome was ruled by kings, and the tribunes were meant to protect the Roman people from the arbitrary and evil acts of kings upon them. One such method was the veto. If the king was going to do something bad to the Roman people, the tribune could veto the action to protect them. By stretching the legal definition of tribunicia potestas, Augustus could argue he was empowered to protect the Roman people. Augustus could then argue anything that he wanted to do in Roman Italy was to protect the Roman people, and with tribunicia potestas, he was legally allowed to do so. This effectively gave the princeps supreme legal authority in Italy as well. Between his powers of Imperium Maius and Tribunicia Potestas, the princeps held supreme legal authority above all others everywhere else in the empire. Besides this, his wife Livia and sister Octavia were all made sacrosanct like tribunes, so it would be a religious offense to harm the imperial family. No touching! No touching! No touching! No touching! No touching! Augustus lived relatively modestly for being one of the richest people of all time. Microsoft News ranks him as the fourth wealthiest person of all time with a peak net worth of 4.63 trillion modern US dollars. Come on, what? 
How? Come on! It's kind of, uh, hard to accurately convert dollars from a dead currency 2,000 years ago, but at least Microsoft was modest enough to put him above Bill Gates. It's also kind of concerning that Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, idolizes Augustus, um, and that is not great, probably. But old rags to riches Augustus ate relatively simple meals and wore clothes woven by Livia, Octavia, and their servants. He invited senators to dine at his house and accepted invitations to dine with them. Augustus was also accessible to the common people of Rome, like the peoples abroad. Common Romans and Italians had a chance to talk to the princeps. He listened to the concerns of the people of Rome and Italy and aided them as well. Augustus had a good sense of humor too, both giving and receiving jokes. Yes, the man who in his youth prescribed men to their deaths could take a joke. On one occasion in the city of Rome, Augustus met a man who looked so similar to him, he could have been his long lost twin brother. Augustus joked, asking if the man's mother had ever been in Rome. The man joked back that she hadn't, but his father had. <laughs> Senators were free to laugh at Augustus in good fun, and he laughed with them. How much damage could a joke do to Imperator Caesar Debephilius Augustus? Augustus's humor and accessibility made him more relatable and human to the people he ruled over, which made it easier for them to accept his rule, which was far better than living under a harsh overseer who could not bear to be insulted and only had time for his inner circle. However careful Augustus was in trying to keep the Senate happy, some would never be satisfied in second place. Within the first decade of Augustus's reign, in 22 BCE, when Augustus was 41 years old, there were rumors of a conspiracy to assassinate him. However, the conspiracy was uncovered and many rumored conspirators fled Rome, whether because they were guilty or because they feared that if Augustus suspected they were guilty, they would be killed. We're all gonna die! Of course, by running, they looked all the guiltier to the Romans. Augustus only hunted down the rumored ringleaders of the conspiracy, and they were executed. Augustus and his associates kept up their building projects in Rome throughout his life. All were signs that Rome was prospering under Augustus. People got jobs for the construction work, and Augustus was permanently inserted into the landscape. In various combinations, these buildings were built to serve the Roman people, to serve the gods, and to honor Augustus or his family for their deeds. They included the Altar of Peace, the Mausoleum of Augustus, the Temple of Mars the Avenger, the Pantheon built by Agrippa, the Temple of Apollo, the Theater of Marcellus, the Villa of Livia, and the Portico of Octavia. Of course, Augustus's nearly 40-year rule of Rome was not without its failures. Augustus faced three great military challenges as the princeps, which he responded to with varying levels of success. In 16 BCE, Augustus had been princeps for 11 years and was 47 years old. Some Roman merchants in German tribal territory, who should normally have been safe, were suddenly rounded up and crucified by a few tribes. For revenge, Augustus's legate assembled forces to invade the territory. However, Augustus's legate and his legions were beaten back and the legion lost its eagle. Numerically, the legion didn't take too many casualties, but the loss had more symbolic consequences. 
Augustus's leadership was based on his reputation of peace, stability, and victory, and his army and his general were just handed a defeat. Additionally, just four years earlier, Augustus was parading how grand an accomplishment it was to return the eagles from Parthia, and now, another eagle slipped out of Rome's hands. Eagle. Augustus himself went to Gaul to restore order, but his legate had already assembled a larger force and invaded further into German territory, leaving the Germans begging for peace, and gave Rome a decisive victory. The eagle's fate isn't recorded, but it was possibly returned, although there wasn't any celebration recorded. Later in Augustus's life, when he was 69 years old, disaster was narrowly avoided in Illyria and on other fronts. At this point, Augustus's 48-year-old adopted son, Tiberius, had long served as an aide to the old princeps. Tiberius's biological father was Livia's first husband, Tiberius Claudius Nero, and had been Augustus's stepson before he was fully adopted. The year was 6 CE, or 6 Common Era. There was conflict across the empire. Tiberius was fighting a war with a German tribe, and the client kingdom of Judea was self-destructing as it had overthrown the Roman-backed king. It ended finally with the Roman governor controlling the region, but that took time to enact, and the deaths of many resistors. But worst of all was a major uprising in Illyria, which directly bordered Italy. Augustus had ruled over the Illyrians for 30 peaceful years by this point. A young generation of Illyrians had never felt the sting of Roman defeat and felt powerful enough to overthrow their Roman overlords. They thought they could best the Romans. As their rebellion gained momentum, the Romans failed to immediately crush it as per usual. The elderly Augustus four time despaired, saying he wished he could die and refused to eat for four days. However, regaining his composure, he alerted the Senate that drastic action had to be taken and that the rebel Illyrians could invade Italy and be in Rome in 10 days. In Italy, there was not even a legion of Praetorian guards and it would take time to move the legions from other provinces to Illyria, so Augustus had to quickly raise new ones. Since there weren't enough Italian volunteers, men were forcibly drafted into service. To additionally fill the ranks of the legions, slaves were taken and would be given freedom and citizenship after their service. In Germany, Tiberius was able to quickly make peace with the exhausted Germans and moved his forces to Illyria. Combining the forces Augustus quickly raised, Rome was ready for war with the Illyrians. These were hard-fought wars. The Illyrians had good numbers and resources, and Illyrian soldiers who had served Roman armies knew the strategies and battle tactics Tiberius would use on them. It took Tiberius three years to finally defeat them. In 9 CE, Tiberius returned to Rome to celebrate a triumph, and his victory restored stability of the Republic and the promise of peace of Augustus' rule. Unfortunately, that reputation was about to take another hit. Whoa, whoa, whoa! That same year, one of Augustus's legates, Quintilius Varus, was taking a tour of his province and through recently acquired German territory. A secret rebellion was brewing under the German leader Arminius, who had been educated in Rome. Arminius understood what the Roman strategy would be and believed the Germans were better off ruling themselves than paying Roman taxes. As Illyria had proven, Augustus's empire was not invincible. Furthermore, Rome was weakened after a hard-fought victory in Illyria. 
Arminius pretended to be an ally of the legate Varus, who would slip away while touring the Teutoburg forest. The German guides loyal to Arminius led Varus into a trap. Varus and his three legions would be surrounded by united German tribes, who wanted Romans out of their territory. Despairing, Varus and several of his senior officers committed suicide, leaving his three legions without strong leadership. Their several attempts to break out failed, and slowly, the legions were defeated by the Germans. The men were killed, enslaved, or sacrificed by the Germans. A few who were captured managed to escape in later years, telling Romans the terror of the Teutoburg Forest. Three legions were annihilated under Augustus's rule, and more eagles were lost. Three legions gone was one-tenth of the whole Roman military. The 72-year-old Augustus was furious at Varus's suicide and that he didn't die fighting with his men trying to find a way out. Around his house, he would sporadically yell, Varus, give me back my legions. Tiberius was sent to put the Germans back under Roman control. This war would be difficult as it again required legions to travel from their assigned province to the German territory. Drafts were also reinstated to fight the Germans. Tiberius would make vengeful expeditions into German territory, burning towns and capturing or killing any German they found. But Germany would not be subdued for the rest of Augustus's life. German leaders didn't want to risk a great battle with Tiberius, and Tiberius didn't want to venture too far into German territory and be cut off, as Antony had been in Parthia. Tiberius stabilized the territory that he had, but didn't truly regain the land. As much as the Romans aspired to conquer all the German people, as Julius Caesar did to the Gauls, they were never able to. Arminius lasted a few years, but eventually was assassinated by his fellow chiefs, jealous of all the power he gained. Which reminds me of some historical event, but I don't remember what. While the loss of these legions stained Augustus's reputation as a victorious peacekeeper, his rule was maintained. Despite these challenges, for most of Augustus's nearly four decades of rule, the status quo was victory in conflict, and Augustus had an unmatched track record as a general, being hailed Imperator 21 times, the most in Roman history. Nobody shines like you. Most of Augustus's problems actually came from the people he was closest to, his family. Augustus tread carefully in his rule so that he would not look so much like a monarch trying to pass off his power to family members even if that's exactly what he was doing. Male members of his family were given accelerated careers, able to start holding magistries before everyone else. Being connected to Augustus, they were always elected. This allowed those family members to gain experience and for Augustus to share the powers of the princeps with them. Of course, as to not look too much like a monarch, his family could not be too popular. In one instance, when Augustus was 53 years old, a crowd started cheering for his seven-year-old grandson, Lucius, son of his daughter Julia and his friend Agrippa. They didn't have a particularly good reason for this, as Lucius was no great general like his father Agrippa. The acclaim was nice because it showed how much people liked Augustus, but such obvious favoritism for his family, cheering Lucius like a little prince, was ultimately not good for the princeps. He was supposed to be the ultimate servant of the Republic, not an emperor with a celebrated imperial family. Augustus used his female family members, as all Roman politicians did, marrying them off to cement political alliances. Before he was princeps, he married his sister Octavia to Mark Antony to ensure their alliance. 
That didn't turn out too well. Later on as princeps, his daughter Julia was married to Agrippa, bringing Agrippa that much closer to Augustus, no longer a friend, but son-in-law. In time, loyal Agrippa would hold the exact same legal powers as Augustus, Imperium Maius and Tribunicia Potestas. I would name you the Hand of the King. Augustus seemed to have wanted multiple people he trusted to have the powers of the princeps. It's thought that Augustus wanted, upon his death, to have family members experienced in government and ruling who all had the powers of the princeps. One could be appointed to lead, as he did, and have several other able family members to support him. It was like a monarchy. with extra steps! But one consistent problem he had with family members was that they kept dying before him. Marcellus, son of Octavia, died young from sickness. His grandchildren Gaius and Lucius didn't make it to their mid-twenties. Livia's son Drusus died at 28. Even his best friend Agrippa, the true military genius of Augustus, an architect behind his greatest victories, died when they were both in their mid-fifties. Tonight, we remember those who gave their blood to defend this country. Hail the victorious dead! These five men had been destined to help Augustus rule his empire, yet all their lives were cut short in various circumstances. Four of them were much younger than Augustus. At least none of them were assassinated, though. Their deaths put more pressure on Augustus to find male heirs who could share his power. Besides his relatives dying, Augustus had a plethora of more personal issues within his family. In 6 BCE, a few years after the death of Agrippa, Augustus was in his mid-fifties and needed a family member who could serve as the princeps when he was gone. He gave his stepson Tiberius the powers of the princeps. At 36 years old, Tiberius had long served his stepfather. He had experience in various magistries and had experience as a Roman commander. Shortly after Agrippa died, he married the widow Julia, who was Augustus's daughter. This further cemented his position. But just like he grew to hate his new wife, Tiberius grew to hate his newfound power and responsibility. Tiberius was burnt out from a life of service, and the power of the princeps only increased the burden of responsibility. Tiberius asked to retire and go into voluntary exile. Augustus was furious at the prospect, but eventually relented, as Tiberius was starving himself to death in a hunger strike. Augustus remained furious at Tiberius. However, a decade later, Augustus was now in his mid-60s, and his only male living family members were the 18-year-old Germanicus and 15-year-old Agrippa Postumus. If Augustus died tomorrow, there was no way these teenagers would be able to rule his empire. However, if the 45-year-old Tiberius came back, he would be able to rule the empire as he had legitimate experience. Tiberius had wanted to return to Rome for some time, and Augustus finally allowed him back if he would take up the mantle of princeps. Tiberius did. Augustus shared up his succession by adopting Tiberius and Agrippa Postumus as his sons, and Tiberius adopted Germanicus as his son. He would soon pass away, leaving the experienced Tiberius in control, who could oversee the careers of the young Germanicus and Agrippa Postumus and ensure they would gain experience to one day take over. Succession wasn't Augustus's only family problem because some members were making him look like a hypocrite. Augustus, as the Republic's first citizen, tried to bring Rome back to more moral practices and away from the immorality of party animals like Mark Antony had been. 
As such, he introduced some pretty serious laws on adultery, making it illegal. Augustus himself was a hypocrite in this. As the young Octavian, he had had many affairs, and his quick affair with Livia had led to a speedy divorce from her husband. Octavian married Livia just three days after she gave birth to her ex-husband's son. Senators joked that Augustus had a lot of experience on the issue of adultery. Augustus wanted men to settle down and start families, which he believed would increase Rome's prosperity. Augustus knew this law would be hard to enforce, but believed it was important to at least try. So, Augustus was furious that he had to address adultery in his own household. His daughter Julia was still married to Tiberius for some time after he went into voluntary exile. Julia had been born when her father was a triumvir and a teenager when he became the princeps. Being the daughter of an emperor slash trillionaire, she had lived a very privileged life. I mean, it's one banana. What could it cost? Ten dollars? Julia was very accustomed to the partying lifestyle that her father was trying to suppress, often in the company of handsome young men who were not her husband Tiberius. There were many vulgar rumors about her and her exploits at her parties, some of which probably were true. Augustus's family was supposed to be paragons of Roman virtue, and his daughter was making him a hypocrite. Of course, Julia could just argue, I learned it by watching you. Facing the facts of his daughter's adulterous lifestyle, Augustus punished Julia and her alleged lovers. One was Mark Antony's second son, Iulius Antonius, who killed himself before he could be punished. However, multiple men were forever exiled from Rome for their affairs with Augustus's daughter. The same was true of Julia herself. She was exiled from Rome in a remote part of the Mediterranean with no luxuries she was used to or male companionship. Augustus regretted much of the situation and later softened his position, moving his daughter to a nicer home with nicer amenities, but still without the luxuries or men she previously enjoyed. Augustus's only daughter would never return to Rome. Julia's children also proved as problematic to Augustus as much as their mother was. Her son Agrippa Postumus, who Augustus had adopted as his own son, seemed to have a darker, crueler personality. When Augustus was 69 years old, he deemed Agrippa Postumus would never be fit to rule, unadopted him, and exiled him. Julia's daughter, Julia the Younger, was also charged with adultery. Like her mother, Julia the Younger and her lover were exiled from Rome. Julia the Younger had become pregnant by her lover, and when the child was born, the 71-year-old Augustus refused to take his great-grandson into his household. Augustus, as the male head of household, could legally kill members of his own family. With an illegitimate baby on his hands that he didn't want, that damaged the reputation of his perfect family, the child was taken from Julia the Younger, abandoned in the wild, and left to die. This was a viciously cruel act by Augustus, and as a good reminder, the ancient world was a different time and place, and many other cultures have practiced infanticide as well for various reasons. It also reminds us that as many similarities as there are to Rome and us today, there are also stark contrasts. For Augustus's few major military defeats and problems within his family, these were relatively small issues compared to what had been plaguing Rome for decades before. A civil war about every decade that ensured the deaths of hundreds or thousands of Romans and provincials who were forced to pick a side and hope they wouldn't suffer too much if they lost. The Roman Republic and people as a whole traded the Republic's oligarchy for an effective emperor 
who gave his empire nearly 40 years of relative peace and prosperity. Conflict didn't cease when Augustus came to power, but the scale decreased. Corruption didn't end with Augustus's rule, but Augustus himself could more effectively punish those found corrupt. People in the provinces lived better lives under the rule of Augustus. People in Italy lived better lives under the rule of Augustus. The people of Rome lived better lives under the rule of Augustus. Generally, common Roman voters didn't care that whomever they voted for consul, praetor, tribune, etc. didn't actually matter because it hadn't actually mattered before. In the decades before Augustus's peace, Roman voters elected men into these positions who promised to deliver victory, peace, and prosperity. But eventually, whoever they picked, there would be another civil war, and things only got worse. Even if voting was meaningless under Augustus, the peace and prosperity he finally brought wasn't. Even if his father Julius Caesar was divine, Augustus was still only human. At the age of 76, Augustus was traveling with Livia to Naples, Italy to watch athletic games in his honor. However, on the journey, he fell ill. He recovered for a few days before his condition worsened. Tiberius was sent for, but we don't know for sure if he made it in time to speak to his father, Augustus. The ancient historian Suetonius says that he did, and that Tiberius and Augustus were able to discuss succession and ruling the empire Augustus had made. Augustus had a few famous words in his final days. One phrase was, I came to Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. Indeed, the landscape of Rome was much changed and much grander than it had been nearly 60 years ago, when an 18-year-old Octavius arrived to claim what Caesar left him. Augustus's last day on earth was August 17, 19 CE. Jesus Christ outlived him by 13 years. Suetonius also writes about Augustus's final day, although it's hard to know how truly accurate this is since Suetonius wrote this over 100 years after Augustus's death. Augustus seemed agitated that there were disturbances outside. Dripping with subtext, this can be read that he was afraid of the state of the empire at his death and if civil war would break out. Augustus asked his servants to fix his appearance in his final hours so he may be more presentable in death, a parallel to Julius Caesar covering his face with his toga as he was bleeding out at the feet of Pompey Magnus's statue. Augustus spoke like an actor leaving the stage. Since well I've played my part, I'll clap your hands and from this stage dismiss me with applause. Then finally, left with Livia and a few attendants, he seemed frightened for a moment that he was being lifted and carried by 40 men, the number of Praetorian guards that would lift his dead body in a few weeks. His truly final words were to Livia. Augustus could have had any woman he wanted in the Roman world, as any politician would have readily married his young, beautiful daughter to the emperor. But Augustus stayed with Livia for the rest of his life, she was no ordinary Roman woman, but the empress, and had some special powers and responsibilities. Livia uncommonly traveled with Augustus as he toured the Roman world, and at times, she would preside over Roman festivals. Additionally, Livia was praised as the ideal Roman woman. There's speculation that they had an open marriage to a degree, that the emperor had a few hall passes, or even that Livia chose lovers for him. 
Whether or not that's true, in their early 20s, the two fell hard and fast for each other. My God! I love she's him. He's crushing it, too. Leave it at that. She is sensational. And recklessly got married at a damage to Octavian's reputation. But they survived every challenge they faced, and as Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, Livia was the first empress. I like to imagine that as Augustus was dying, he and Livia reflected on happy times in their marriage. I wonder what Augustus said to Livia the day he was made emperor. What he came home and said, how he explained his new powers, what words they exchanged, and how they reacted. I wonder. Boopy doopy doop boop sex. Sorry, that was the wrong clip. Hello, handsome. What a day, eh? I won. What happened? Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything. Just when I thought I was out, I am a sedative. They pull me back in. I love the Republic. What does thou want? I love the Republic. What's the like I'm in the Empire business. My powers have doubled since the last time I Look how I This is me. 
this is how I Look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. So that's it was such a long, 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 long con. Yeah, and a lot of it is subtle. <laughs> a lot of it is subtle. None of it is illegal. Strike to claim it. A strike to claim it. And he got it! years at the time of Augustus's death. Livia, in her early 70s, held her dying Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. He kissed her and said, Livia, remember our married life. The emperor's body was transported in the nighttime back to Rome so his body wouldn't rot in the August heat. Everywhere, communities he came across mourned the death of the princeps. Making it to Rome, a public funeral was held. His body, which was three weeks expired by this point, was left closed in the coffin, but the people could look upon a wax effigy of him. Of course, anywhere they looked, they would have seen Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus. His name was imprinted through the city. Statues all around displayed a young, commanding, perfect Augustus, and his youthful face was on the coins in their pockets. Everywhere I go, I see his face. Tiberius had had a few years holding the same power as Augustus, and so easily transitioned into the role of princeps. His acceptance was a little more clumsy, as Tiberius was not so smooth a political operator as Augustus was. The song and dance of the Senate offering him supreme power, Tiberius refusing, the Senate insisting, and Tiberius reluctantly accepting, was not as well rehearsed as Augustus's ceremony was back in the day, but the effect was the same. Power transferred from the first Roman emperor to the second Roman emperor. The Republic was not, and never would be, restored. Augustus proved to the Roman people that the Roman Republic did more harm than good. Instead, a Roman Empire, with power concentrated in one good leader, improved the lives of everyone. Tiberius continued to treat the Senate with the respect that Augustus had, so they were satisfied enough to let one person have legal authority over them, so long as he didn't call himself king or dictator. Augustus's will left 43 million sesterces to the Roman treasury and gave money to every citizen in the empire. He also gave final bonuses to his armies, ensuring their loyalty to Tiberius. Tiberius received two-thirds of what was left of Augustus's massive riches, and Livia was given the last third. About a month after Augustus passed, the Senate voted to make him a god like Julius Caesar before him. Tiberius's full name became Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus. Livia died 15 years later at the age of 86. She joined her husband as a Roman deity years later when her grandson, Emperor Claudius, named the first empress a goddess of Rome. Augustus and Livia's dynasty did not last forever. Tiberius was followed by the third Roman emperor, Caligula, followed by Emperor Claudius, and finally, Emperor Nero. 
Augustus's great-great-grandson Nero was one of the worst emperors of all time and a horrible person, one time kicking his pregnant wife in the stomach, making her miscarry. Nero's rule was so bad, he was declared a public enemy by the Senate, after which he chose to commit suicide. After that, the Year of the Four Emperors began, a large civil war, in which, you guessed it, four men were trying to become emperor all at once, ending with Emperor Vespasian, a man not connected to Augustus's or Livia's blood. Emperors Tiberius and Claudius were not so great as emperors as Augustus was, and Caligula and Nero are definitely among the worst. However, the fact remains that despite no emperors for generations living up to Augustus's legacy, imperial power remained for one man to take, even outside of Augustus and Livia's dynasty. Every Roman emperor, for the rest of time, would bear Caesar Augustus's name, as it became titles to bestow among emperors to confirm their rule. Imperial names and titles in the Roman Empire and beyond the Roman Empire is something I'm actually going to talk about in a legacy episode in a few months, so stay subscribed to the feed. We'll explore some really cool Roman Emperor names and Imperial titles and what Kaisers and Tsars have to do with Caesar Augustus. As has been referenced, the Roman Empire split into a Western and Eastern half. The Western half that included Rome fell first in 395 CE under the rule of Imperator Caesar Flavius Romulus Augustulus. The western half of Augustus's empire stood for over 380 years after his death. The eastern half continued as the Byzantine Empire, who still considered themselves Romans, even if their capital wasn't Rome. The Byzantine Empire fell in the 1400 CE, so the legacy of Augustus's empire lasted a pretty long time. Not bad, kid. Our essential question this episode was, why was Augustus never assassinated, and why did no Roman seriously challenge his rule or ever try to restore the Republic? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to consider your answer. Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus was the man who ended the Roman Republic and created the Roman Empire. He entered the dying Republic at the right time with the right name having been adopted by the popular Julius Caesar. What you started. When he ruled, his subjects did not call him emperor, but princeps, the first citizen of the Republic, and Augustus portrayed himself as the ultimate servant of the Republic. Augustus worked hard to improve the lives of his subjects and died a very different man from the 18-year-old boy who had arrived in Rome. As far as Augustus never being assassinated, and why no Roman seriously challenged his rule, let's consider the following. Augustus's adoptive father, the dictator Julius Caesar, was killed by senators he had trusted and pardoned. In Caesar's short rule as dictator for life, he made the Senate far more impotent than they had ever been, making his own decisions behind closed doors and then forging Senate meetings that had occurred as if the Senate had actually debated what Caesar alone had decided. He hardly gave anyone else the opportunity to meaningfully increase their prestige in Octoritas and was surrounded by pardoned enemies without a bodyguard. While he tried to deny his supreme power, he didn't do so very effectively and many feared he had kingly ambitions. That is disgusting! And so, senators like Brutus and Cassius, and 60 or so others, opted to kill him 
and restore the system of competing for top magistrates. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. We have caught and compromised to a permanent end. Less than 20 years later, yeah, all this happened in less than 20 years, when Augustus became princeps, things went a little differently. For one, anyone who had the wealth and reputation to threaten Augustus' supremacy were already dead, namely, Mark Antony. Secondly, while there were still many of his former enemies in Rome that he had pardoned, he did not bully them and gave them equal opportunity to hold magistries and gain prestige. Third, he very actively portrayed himself not as a king nor dictator, but as the princeps. While he had wanted to retire, he did as the Senate and the common Roman people asked of him. With great reluctance, he accepted the great powers they gave him. He was the first citizen and greatest servant of the Republic. And my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! Julius Caesar had thought he was beyond the need for bodyguards, as his enemies must have realized civil war would follow if they assassinated him. He was right on one count, at least. Augustus had his Praetorian Guard to protect him, and had made very clear as the young warlord Octavian to assassinate someone of his stature, brutal civil war would follow. And even if it was easy to see that Augustus was supreme above all, he still gave the Senate some ability and influence in his regime, earning the prestige of the magistries and serving the Republic like him. This system, in this period of time, with these senators was something they could accept, whereas two decades earlier, they couldn't handle Caesar's less subtle system. But between civil war with the Second Triumvirate and the Liberators, the prescriptions of the Second Triumvirate, the starvation of Rome by Sextus Pompey, and finally, one last civil war between Antony and Octavian, it was clearly better to live under Augustus than create another civil war. And as Augustus's rule proved, under him, you wouldn't just survive, but you could thrive. Submitting to Emperor Augustus was far preferable to getting killed in a myriad of ways that would follow in the aftermath of his assassination. It wasn't worth trying to kill Augustus and restore a broken republic. That's why democratic republics of today took some values from the Roman Republic, but did not totally copy it because it failed, built on a broken system that could be exploited and eventually led to the first Emperor Augustus. Augustus's rule forces us to ask a lot of interesting questions about humanity. What should the price for our freedom versus prosperity be? As much as he tried to portray himself otherwise, his rule was enforced by a paid military on his dime and no one had the wealth or forces to challenge that. In a sense, it makes him very similar to Kim Jong-un, the military dictator of North Korea today. However, understanding that, Augustus was not a terribly oppressive ruler to his citizens, although slavery still continued, and people's lives improved compared to the numerous civil wars in the last decades of the Republic. In this, we can also ask, does the end justify the means? A young Octavian prescribed men and put them on death lists because they were his political enemies, rivals, or simply because they were wealthy and he needed money. A young Octavian was more savage to Brutus's and Cassius's captured prisoners than Antony was and executed many. 
Does all that violence in his younger years make him an unfit ruler? Or is that outweighed in the fact that as Augustus grew older, his violence against Romans severely decreased? Another age-old question to consider. Does absolute power corrupt absolutely? Octavian, as a young triumvir, had affairs with many women, stole Livia from her husband, dressed as a god at his wedding with her, and feasted while Sextus Pompey starved everyone else. However, as Octavian assumed more and more power, he became more and more generous, like his adoptive father Caesar, pardoning more political enemies, and accepting peaceful surrenders of enemy armies, and taking their loyalty. When Augustus did possess absolute power, and could legally overpower any decision the Senate or any magistrate wanted to make, he didn't abuse this power. He treated the Senate with respect, and did not live terribly lavishly or opulently. He certainly gave advantages to his family and inner circle, but relatively, that isn't as corrupt as heavily taxing citizens to add to his fortune. In fact, Augustus used his absolute power to provide for the common people, improving their lives with less conflict, which gave the Roman world time to heal from so many civil wars and start building new and better lives for themselves. I have brought peace, freedom, justice, and security to my new empire. The 18-year-old Octavius did not arrive in Rome with this endgame in mind. Do I really look like a guy with a plan? Octavius wanted what every Roman politician wanted, to increase his power and actoritas. His first step was becoming Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. Octavian entered Roman politics when the game was at its most vicious and played the game viciously. He was cruel to his enemies, yet became less cruel over time. He made mistakes along the way, yet in the end, he won the game and undisputedly had the greatest power and prestige of all, lived for several decades, and died of natural causes as an old man next to his loving wife. Oh, it's beautiful. Augustus's rule ushered in the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. It was a period of about 200 years of relative peace in the Roman Empire, where conflict and civil wars were far less common, and the Roman Empire flourished. Rome had gone from a kingdom, to a republic, to the empire. It broke new ground! Augustus maintained his rule by pleasing three factions of people. The soldiers, who ensured his rule through their loyalty that he paid for. The inhabitants of the empire, who accepted his rule for the peace and prosperity it provided them. And the aristocratic senate, who would still have prestigious positions in the senate and magistrates, and still held some influence, even if it paled in comparison to his own. One of my favorite stories about Augustus was one that occurred in 17 BCE, when Augustus was 45 years old. He was dining at a senator's house, Vettius Polio, who had ponds of exotic foreign fish. Polio had a penchant for feeding slaves who displeased him into the pond, who would be eaten alive by carnivorous lamprey. During the dinner, a slave broke a cup as he was serving his master and Augustus. Normally, that would have been that slave's last day on earth. But Augustus used his absolute power to dish out some poetic justice. Augustus ordered his own servant to break every other cup around them in front of Polio. Augustus would not see a man eaten alive for dropping a cup, and Polio had to watch all of his expensive cups destroyed by his emperor and watched his slave walk free. 
After Polio died, he willed his home to Augustus. Augustus demolished Polio's home to build the Porticus of Livia in honor of his kind wife. As much as I love that story, it begs yet another important question to be considered. How much of this history can we trust? Our records of 2,000 years ago are limited, to say the least, and if history is written by the victors, in this case Augustus, what might Augustus's subjects had really said if they truly felt safe to criticize him? Augustus didn't hypercensor critical works about him like Kim Jong-un, for example, and as previously stated, he could take a joke. But Augustus definitely produced a lot of his own propaganda throughout his life. Literally everything about his life is potentially tainted by propaganda, as some historical records would have been written in a dramatic, romantic sense that Augustus was always destined to succeed and bring prosperity to Rome. Which, no, it was not destined, unless you believe that there is no free will. Well, if you can't tell, does it matter? Uh, getting past that, this story I just told that I love might be true, but it is definitely propaganda, painting Augustus in a good light. That's why, whenever I thought we might possibly be getting romanticized tales about Augustus or the man who would become Augustus, I tried to cite who the historian was and noted when he was born and how it was likely long after Augustus. Same goes for his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, who also had a ton of propaganda about him and literally became a Roman god. And heck, I am biased too. Unfortunately, like Mark Zuckerberg, I am fascinated by Augustus and Death of the Roman Republic was originally just going to be about Imperator Caesar Debephilius Augustus. In the spring of 2017 CE, when I took a Roman history class in college, we played a simulation game for a few weeks in which we were politicians in the wake of the assassination of Caesar. Some classmates role-played as conspirators, like Brutus and Cassius. Some were Caesarians, like Antony and Lepidus. And I, myself, was young Octavius. We as our characters didn't have to do a civil war like they did, and in fact, while we had some concept of what happened after the Ides of March and what happened to some of these more famous figures, we didn't dive into the specifics of the aftermath until after the game was over. But in the end, I still ended up being Augustus, which is pretty cool. Shout out to Kathleen and Leah, by the way. So, I was biased and predisposed to like Augustus. Since my Roman history class covered Roman history from its inception to the fall of the Western Empire in the summer of 2017, I rented a book from the library called Augustus, First Emperor of Rome by Adrian Goldsworthy. It is one of the best books I've ever read and filled in a lot more of Augustus's character to me. I learned about the prosperity he brought to the empire and how he maintained the facade of not being emperor, but the princeps. And I also learned a lot about the horrible things he did. As I said in chapter 16, I am 99% sure that before he met Livia, when young Octavian was having his affairs, he was at the very least coercing some women into sex. He was a warlord and a dictator who signed men to their deaths, and people were likely scared to say no to him. Or in this episode, how he exiled his daughter Julia and his grandchildren, Julia the Younger, Agrippa Posthumus, and left his infant great-grandson out to die. Augustus was not a good man, but an interesting man. He was the final nail in the coffin for the Roman Republic and became the first emperor, but if he hadn't played his cards right, he could have been assassinated like Julius Caesar or forgotten like Lepidus. 
There was concern he'd die early of natural causes as well. As a young man, he became gravely ill a lot, which he outgrew later in life. Augustus made crazy gambles and evil actions and survived it all and made something better. As the emperor, he brought peace and stability to his people. In his life, he did a lot of good for his people, one with a lot of violence and maintained by the threat of violence. Power is not innocent. I'm recording this on August 6th, 2020. This episode is coming out on October 27th, 2020. For the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about modern America, but if you'd like to skip ahead because that is not relevant to you and you just want to get to the series finale thoughts and the future of what this podcast will be, then you can skip to an hour, seven minutes, and four seconds. To put this shortly and bluntly, America is struggling very badly right now, especially if you are a minority in America. Historically, America has had a horrible track record at helping out those in need, including Americans and people abroad. America has done good to Americans and fixed some of our mistakes, but there is so much, there is so much that needs to be fixed. Appreciate that we live in a democratic republic better than the Roman Republic. In a week, because in a week will be election day, you have the opportunity to vote for a lot of important offices. If you are like me, you do not love the two-party system, and your favorite candidate lost a certain primary, but nonetheless, there is one candidate wholly, totally unfit for office and has demonstrated that over the past four years, or even just 2020. Even if he hopefully loses the presidency, there are still a lot of issues in America and the world that have to be solved. Hold elected leaders accountable to the promises they make on campaigns. Seek justice when you see injustice. American democracy is by the people and for the people. As much as I preach that the Roman Republic is super different from American society today because it is so radically different, it is concerning to me that a small minority of very wealthy Americans have a lot more pull in politics than the average American voter. But also, be worried of the populace, as their popular appeal may be a means to gain power and be corrupt in that position of power. Roman history and the Roman Republic is a very popular niche in history. We examined about 100 years, but the Roman Republic lasted 482. That is nearly twice as long as America has been around. America may one day be a footnote in history. And if it is, don't let it be a tragedy like the Roman Republic transforming into an empire. Because as interesting as I find the story in Augustus, I don't want it to happen to us. But a positive one, where democracy succeeded and mankind could unite to make the world a better place. Restoring America to its ideals or even getting there the first time will be a lot of work beyond this election, beyond the next election. It is constant work from all Americans to seek to improve America, not just for yourself, but for all Americans and the world as well, because America has a lot of privileges and a lot of power that we don't always use for good. Hopefully with good leadership, working with good-hearted Americans, America can be something better. Gaius Octavius was born into a dying republic and came into adulthood as it was about to hit its death throes. Octavian survived the death throes ended what had been the Republic, and spent the rest of his life ruling as Imperator Caesar Dibifilius Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. And finally, this is the end of the narrative. 
of how the Roman Republic died and the Roman Empire began. Now, if you are a little confused on some parts about how exactly this happened over the course of a hundred years, um, I, I'm there with you. I do not understand everything about this story, and despite how much I read, I, I'm not an expert in it, nor Roman culture, or uh, familiar with the whole biographies of the dozen or so important characters that we really met. I'm kind of okay with Caesar and Antony, uh, but Cleopatra and Augustus, but there's so much that I personally don't know and want to learn about in the future because the story of a at least semi-democratic society giving that up to become an autocracy, uh, so fascinating. Like, there's so much going on there. I tried my best, I hope you learned something, and if you do want to learn more, then gosh darn it, I might be a good teacher. Roughly around Halloween, I'll be releasing a Q&A episode where you can tweet or email me questions about Roman history, the show, myself, whatever, and I'll try to answer it. Additionally, I have a few one-off episodes in mind I want to release. I'll have an epilogue episode recounting the evolution of the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire, but right now that script is 11 pages and I'm only at Sola, so that's gonna be long. Uh, that will be released at some point. I'm also going to release a fun one-off where I rank Roman names heard in the series and throughout Roman history on who has the coolest names. As I mentioned at the top, I also plan to remaster this episode. I am satisfied with how this is structured, but at some point I will restructure it into chronological order, and maybe it'll work better that way, I don't know, but there are still irons in the fire that will trickle out in 2020 and 2021. Beyond those, I'll come up with some other ideas too. Also, this podcast may or may not be up forever. I loved just about everything about podcasting, except listening back to the sound of my own voice, but it costs a pretty penny to keep this podcast out. While this is evergreen educational content that you can listen to at any time and will hopefully make sense, although the pop culture might seem a little dated, so I guess I'll look kind of old like that, I don't know if it would always be financially smart to keep this podcast up. That said, for the foreseeable future, I would say for at least two years, this podcast will remain up. However, after that, we'll see. If you don't want to lose Death of the Roman Republic, you can find it on Podbean and should be able to download it directly to your computer forever. Additionally, should the day come that Death of the Roman Republic leaves the podcasting sphere, I promise it will be available elsewhere, like YouTube for example. You can check out the Death of the Roman Republic podcast YouTube channel right now. If I ever start making that transition, I'll post an episode here a few months in advance, notifying you this podcast is leaving so you have time to find its new source. You'll hopefully be able to find it again on YouTube, maybe with some images next time. So at the end of all of this, with feature content intermittently on the way, and with Death of the Roman Republic perhaps leaving the platform someday, if you care about possibly re-listening to episodes, I would recommend you stay subscribed so you stay in the know if the series will ever be moving. Also, since this is evergreen content and you can listen to it at any time, you can share out this series to others uh, so new people find and enjoy the series. And heck, if people are always kind of trickling in and listening to the show, that really warms my heart. And I would love to keep this podcast up forever because it'll be worth it to uh, help educate people and hopefully help entertain them a bit too. Uh, speaking of heartwarming, guys, I realize I was a little... Uh, maybe rushed and sweaty sounding uh, because I am on this August day. Um, and this is the last episode. So 
Gosh, thanks for listening. Those of you who have stuck around so long, whenever you started listening, I appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the future content of the series. Making a podcast has been a big dream of mine and that anyone would listen to me is very much appreciated and very heartwarming. Heartwarming, gosh. And uh, this won't be the last you'll hear from me. And I'm sorry this episode is so long, but it's the finale, so I guess I can be a little indulgent. With all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the series.